thought about that, maybe any, I don't know if any ideas were prompted in your mind and heart as you think about the All Souls Circus, right? That really doesn't make sense. And if you have a certain idea of consistency and everything working out in this system, it's not going to satisfy you what we're doing here. And I think one of the things is, is to make peace with that and realize that we're dependent upon grace alone even for our very subsistence and who we are theologically. Um, Father Martin was speaking with someone at, Father, at, at, um, at the Catizo Coffee House, I think it was Paul, and, and they were talking about Anglicanism. And one of the things that I mentioned as I inserted myself on the conversation that, you know, if God doesn't exist, we're in trouble. <laughs> he does, of course, and so we're not. But if he, if he doesn't, this doesn't really hang together perfectly on its own. It's not, oh, I see, it all makes perfect sense. I can trust in the system and not in him. <laughs> so there is a sense of, I want you to be, I hope that with me you're wrestling with that and thinking about that, and that it's driving you to only hope in prayer, <laughs> that is in God, regular, concentrated, and prolonged, the little overflowings of spiritual joy and little beams of heaven. Constant spiritual practice. This is what Jeremy Taylor advised. <laughs> we certainly do have our impressive minds. And I still think, maybe you can correct me, there is the, a wonderful school somewhere that's unpacking all of these great Caroline divines and, and mining the resources of Anglicanism. But I don't think so. I think these people need to be discovered, rediscovered. And I hope that you're availing yourself of those resources that we put on the website under catechesis, the article that covers Anglicanism, especially Thornton's book, we could wrestle between whether we're evangelical and high church for forever. And again, what I've tried to suggest is we have tried to split the difference. We're trying to do both of those identities at once. And you'll see what's going on in the handout in a second. We're not there yet. But I want to offer a, another axis, we might say. And that's what we're doing in this virtues seminar or catechesis year, maybe we could come up with a, a third option instead of just high church or evangelical, of which we are both. What if we moved, launched into the depths of a sort of contemplative Anglicanism, where our chief goal was to enrich and deepen our spiritual lives? And maybe some of those Debates over high church or evangelical would fade as we learn to make room in our lives for the presence of the Holy Spirit, for those every moment bursts of prayer. So that's one of the things we're thinking about here. As Father Martin and we were discussing this series, we were talking about going from knowledge to experience, experiencing these virtues, and that means experiencing the vices as they reside within each of us. Our heart in pilgrimage is continuing <laughs> with envy, sloth, and lust <laughs> along the way. <laughs> Not so much as cairns to guide us, but as uh, obstacles to avoid. And as we analyze these in more detail, I think that we will find that these really are things that inhabit you. That's one of the great things about the analysis of envy. You immediately recognize it, or at least I do, <laughs> immediately recognize it. That has been sort of, it's been going undercover, and as soon as you analyze it well, and tutor yourself under the wisdom of the great thinkers of the Christian tradition, you're like, oh yeah, I fall into this often. 
One of the practices that we're going to introduce to begin with is a verse that I'd like to, us to read together. Every time we do a different virtue, instead of starting with a collect, of which we could have chosen many, um, I'd like to start with a verse having to do with the, the vice or the virtue that's being investigated for that day. And then to dare to leave a little bit of silence. One of the highlights for me was when Jim was talking about T.S. Eliot and he was talking about the silent silence between the waves, and he actually dared to give us some silence in this room for a little bit. And that was quite bold, and I think that testifies to the spiritual depths that he's navigating. And so what we'll do is, I could recite it, but I thought, why not say it together? It's also a gathering device. This is the great paradox. You don't have to say the Greek part at the end. I just want to throw that in there because that's the same word that Aristotle uses for virtue that shows up in the Bible. And let's say this verse together and then we'll just reside in the silence, the only one in whose hope we could ever find any measure of virtue. This is not a self-improvement project. This is about drawing closer to Christ and him being formed in us. So let's say this together and then I'll leave us some silence. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So that will be our practice, and maybe the silence will grow as we move in. And why do you need to supplement your faith? Isn't faith enough, right? Faith, well, the scriptures are clear to supplement your faith with virtue, but these things aren't in competition with one another. And, of course, we see here that if you quoted that verse on its own, we might be in trouble, but it's his divine power that is enabling us to do this in the first place. It's one of these great paradoxes that show, show up over and over again in the epistles. Yes, we need to do it, but we can't do it at the same time. And virtue is the word that is employed. This pagan tradition that is brought into the Christian tradition, not by Thomas Aquinas in some distant future, no, already in the New Testament, we see this going on. And so as we think about this, I want to briefly overview where we're going to be. We're going to start today, if we get there, with envy as well as an introduction. And Roy is going to take us through patience. Bethany and Joel are going to cover lust and chastity. And please understand, I did not assign these because these are specialists in one or the other, right? Um, that I, knew, I knew I was going to be in trouble when I asked certain people to do something. I was like, oh, this isn't going to seem right. But nevertheless, this is, we are all complicit in these and maybe showing signs of hope in different areas. Uh, we do have a lot of uh, couple tag teams this year. Ryan's going to take us through sloth and acedia. And then all of a sudden, wait, what's going on? Is all saints a vice, right? What's happening? Well, Adam is going to take us through the feast of all saints because our red-letter days that we're introducing, and it's, it's Denise's birthday today, and, and in, in, in Greece, name days trump 
birthday, so I've been able to say to her, look, it's St. Matthew this week. I think I'm the one who should get the attention today. <laughs> anyway, no, I didn't really do that. Um, so uh, we are, every time you see red, that means we're going to talk about the cycle of the church year. So we're peppering this Virtues and Vice series by walking us through the church year. We did that two, two cycles ago. In 2014 and 2015, we talked more about the church year, and it struck me as rather strange. We should be pacing that throughout the year, and so we will be taking breaks. For example, Dan is going to take us through some Advent music when it comes to that time of the year. So you'll see that going on. Bob Roberts is going to take us through Pride and Humility. He's well-published and an expert in this area. We're so blessed to have him in this congregation. And then as we move along, we're going to cover gratitude. We're going to cover the four cardinal virtues. You'll see what they are as we move along. And we keep having these insertions of the liturgical year. Uh, Jay Wood, who also is an important figure research-wise in this area, is going to come in and talk to us about the intellectual virtues. We're going to do faith, hope, and love. And you'll see some more duos there. So that is what we're up to. So let's settle into this. And as the red-letter days are interspersed throughout our year, we're also working on the virtues and the vices. With God's help, of course. <laughs> This is not just the church that has been realizing the necessity for this. There are people in the wider intellectual world representing the church, such as Elizabeth Anscombe or Alistair McIntyre. These are famous names that have helped the wider philosophical world realize the necessity of thinking in a richer way about what it means to shape ourselves as individuals in an Aristotelian way. And again, Aristotle is the pagan thinker who is one of the chief go-to places for the Christian tradition to converse with as we think about what the virtues and vices are. The Christian tradition does not mirror Aristotle perfectly. There are sometimes it has to say, actually, you didn't hear the gospel, Aristotle. There's got to be new dimensions. But it's important to realize that wider theological conversation, um, philosophical conversation, that came out in these famous books in the 20th century. So it's not just us who are thinking about these. And that has spilled over into a huge surfeit of publications today. So I recommend, if you want to read along, play along at home, Virtues and Their Vices is a really wonderful book from where all the stuff I got, Envy, is going to come from. And it is, it was, when we got it hardcover for our seminar that I did with Jay Wood, he led some faculty together with this. It was like $110. So I was like, how could we ever expect someone? Because it was hardcover. Well, now it's 15 bucks on Amazon. And you can only order one per household. I tried to order several. I learned that the hard way. Amazon's very good. You can't find another account. But if you wanted to get one, that's a great way to do it. And then there's Rebecca DeYoung, her book, Glittering Vices. She has another, others moving in this direction. Bob's book, Spiritual Emotions. A lot of you have been thinking about Jamie Smith, who just came and talked about these patterns. So this is all testifies to this revival of these rhythms of virtue that we need to instill in our lives. And of course, you can go to these books. They're fantastic in both recovering and moving the tradition of the virtues and vices forward. But you can also go to some of the classics. And Aquinas' book on evil is a beautiful book that uncovers one of the classic accounts. And then you have people like Joseph Pieper in the 20th century who recovered the Thomist tradition for our time. And remember the Kirkland, Costco, Anglican tradition. We just take something and stamp it and say, that's ours. <laughs> well, the Dominicans had a presence in English spirituality. And to do this is not just to naughtily 
jump over someone's uh, fence and, and steal grapes from their vineyard. It is a plant that's growing in our vineyard as well. And so that's one of the reasons we're, we're happy to do this. When we look at the virtue tradition artistically, one of the places we might want to go is Giotto's Arena Chapel in Padua. That's one of the places I, I find most helpful. But before we get there, I just want to show you that there are great images, and I wish these, we can't turn those lights down, it's okay. Um, you get a sense here of a tree from a manuscript from the 14th century that is wilting. Okay, and this tree is wilting, and the stalk of the tree, the root, is pride. And that's the reason that the, the leaves are wilting, is because that tree doesn't, isn't sustained. And, oh, that's wonderful, thank you. And then this tree is woo, doing beautifully because its root is humility and dependence upon God. And therefore, all the other little leaves represent the virtues tradition. And these, all these little leaves represent the vices tradition. So this has a deep and rich history in medieval manuscripts. I love to unpack the ways that these charts have showed up in Christian history. And when we go into the arena chapel... There's all these wonderful scenes of the life of Jesus and the early life of the Virgin Mary in the Arena Chapel. But way down there at the bottom, the foundation of all of these biblical scenes and apocryphal scenes are the virtues and the vices in conversation with one another. So I'm talking about this area right down here. And you walk through this. and. Uh, and it's, it's intimidating because you're in the arena chapel and you want to look at these scenes, but then there's this right where you are facing you. This is the first thing that you see. The slides are deceptive, right? Because you want to just look at the beautiful drawings of Jesus, but you're faced with hope and desperation. This suicide that's going on here, this yielding to despair, violating the gift of life in your own person, and then you have hope out to be crowned because she persevered. And so there's a real humanism at the heart of this arena chapel from the early 14th century that you can't help but avoid. And that's what it's like. We want to come here and talk about the Gospels and hear the sermon as we do, and it's important, but we're faced with the failures of our own life, aren't we? And that's what Giotto does so marvelously. Here you have fortitude versus that whirl of inconstancy. Someone who can't persevere, who's thrown off by the challenges that life presents to her. You have faith and infidelity. Infidelity holding an idol there. And then you have prudence and foolishness. And prudence is one of those virtues that we'll cover when it comes to the four cardinal virtues next year. Another example being justice and injustice. Hal is going to lead us through that really rich tradition with the challenge of having to do it in a week. These are, there's a lot to squeeze in. And so what I love about the chapel is there, and then you see the faux marble with all the virtues at the bottom, and it's leading to judgment. We will be judged as to whether or not we have exemplified these virtues in our lives. And there is a wonderful image of St. Francis, and he is trouncing upon luxuria, superbia, and avaritia. <laughs> These Latin terms, along with their personified vices, the boar, the lion, and the wolf, that he overcomes with poverty against avarice, chastity against luxuria or lust, and finally, obedience 
which cuts to the heart of pride. I give up my will, whatever you say, superior. And we don't do that in our society. It is so difficult. And that's why sometimes our pride goes unchecked. When you would insult St. Francis, I've probably shared this before, someone got up and finally just let him have it. I think you are a phony. I think you are leading people astray and just cut into him in a public setting. Imagine one of you doing that right now, just saying, Milliner, you're just full of it, I don't know, and just unloading. I would be angry, I would be steaming, I would try to control myself, and Francis says, you're the only one who speaks truthfully of me. Thank you. Thank you. And he had trained his heart to respond in virtue. Not, again, in the self-improvement project, but by responding to the Holy Spirit. The tradition got very elaborate as we go on. This is one of the most famous. I wish we had time to go into it in great detail. This is Mantegna's uh, elaborate allegory. What you have up there are the three of the cardinal virtues um, about to come down and spring somebody in prison who is in bondage to the vices, such as uh, sloth or lust. And here is Minerva coming in and chastity coming in to chase away those vices. These elaborate allegories are created. And we could, again, get lost in them, and maybe we'll have a chance to do that. But I want to point out that the Protestant tradition seems to be an erasure of all of that elaborateness with simplified views what happens with Lucas Cranach, the great best friend of Martin Luther, who was the painter, is he takes these elaborate virtue tradition allegories and he says, you know what, it's not speaking to people anymore. They're getting lost in the forest of what vice should I follow, what virtue should I avoid, or vice versa, rather. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's the problem. When it gets that complicated, you lose track of the scorecard. You're like, who, who, which, which one should I do now? And... And what Kronik did is he cut through it with, you have simple, you have death and life. You have trying to do it on your own, law, and then you have grace. And so there you see sin and death personified and the devil chasing this person who is hopeless and off in the distant horizon there is Jesus saying, hey, I'm really virtuous, can you pull it off? And then you have the law and we might even say the virtue tradition <laughs> that has Put this person in bondage. And Luther is saying, this is not working. And so Chronic is illustrating and saying, your only hope is in this guy who has defeated death and the devil below. And the job of the preacher is to point to him, not to outline a list of virtues and vices. And I want to start with that to remind us that when we go into this as Protestants, we do have a contribution to make to this virtue and vice tradition. And this is why I want to share with you on your handout on page 245. Um, on the back of your handout, you'll see this is from the European Reformation Sourcebook. I, I read this this summer, and I thought it was a really nice reminder <laughs> as we begin as Protestants to uncover the virtue and vice tradition that we've let perhaps lie fallow. So Contarini, and let me just tell you a little bit about who this guy is. He's a moderate reformer within the Catholic Church, okay? And so he was famously involved in the Diet at Regensburg. He's trying to cut a deal with these Protestants and say, I am with you. I think you're on to something. 
But can we get along? And this famously fails as they try to debate the nature of the Eucharist and things of that kind. But what's so interesting is that when you read Contarini, and this is why I wanted you to have it, he knows the virtue and vice tradition. He's deeply educated. He knows it backwards and forwards, better than anyone who's trying to recover the virtue and vice tradition perhaps today. He's deeply educated in the 16th century in the virtue and vice tradition that he's been reared in. And yet he has an experience. I have truly arrived at the following firm conclusion. Although I had formerly read it and knew how to repeat it, nevertheless only now, as a result of experience, do I fully grasp its meaning. Nobody can justify himself or purge his soul of worldly affections through works. Skipping down. They were capital fools, Aristotle and others, in thinking that this purification could be brought about through habit by acquiring habitual practice of virtues and suppressing worldly affections. Fools to think you could do it through habit. Why do I say that? Because habit is very popular right now in evangelical circles. Everyone's talking about habits and ingraining these virtues into yourself. We've forgotten that. We've got to get back to it. We just had a wonderful chapel series on this, and I think it's important. But here you have a guy, Contarini, well-versed in the Catholic tradition, who has a grace experience, and he says it's impossible. You can't do it on your own. You can't pull this off. So people who knew this tradition really well (laughs) saw the inability of pursuing this on your own ability. And maybe on uh, the reason I have Michelangelo there at, on your sheet as well is <laughs> because here was his tomb for Julius II. This is a brief art history lesson. I couldn't help but share this with you because I find it one of the most moving experiences to learn about Michelangelo. This is his plan for the tomb of Julius II. It was going to be at the base of St. Peter's. It was going to be, it's not there now. It was going to be the largest sculpture ever created. And this is what it turned out to be, a pitiful realization of of an ambitious project. It was like starting a 10-volume book, and then you end up writing a little pamphlet. This is what he ended up writing for Julius II. And the reason I'm saying this to you right now is because if you look at this, and we took a little pilgrimage there this summer with the family to this very important sculpture in Rome. It is drawing upon an illegal book that preached the message of grace in Italy in the 16th century. This is the kind of stuff that Contarini was attracted to. And it's called The Benefits of Christ. You can still read it. It's published sometimes by evangelical circles today. We now know, because of Michelangelo research, that he was reading this book. And as he read the book, he realized that the virtue tradition could only take you so far. And he knew the virtue tradition, because hadn't he not trained himself habitually to create great works of art? And wasn't he doing it to earn his salvation in the eyes of some of his superiors in the Catholic Church? And he was doing it beautifully. But in a secret, clandestine way, he was meeting in Viterbo with the reform circle, including Vittoria Colonna, Contarini, and others. And so what he did is instead of giving us a triumphant Julius II, the pope on a war horse, he gave us a despondent one who is not realizing his own virtue but is downcast like the rest of us. This is maybe the greatest sculpture of justification by faith that there might be out there. 
And the reason I mention it in regard to the virtues is because one art historian has uncovered the fact that these strange figures that show up above Julius, on the side of Julius II and by Moses, Michelangelo deliberately misdescribes them in his memoirs. He says that they represent the virtues such as prudence. This is, and that's what the flower garland and the mirror. And an art historian is reading Michelangelo and saying that is not at all what is being represented by Michelangelo in this sculpture. Why is he using the virtue tradition to describe these? Well, what it actually depicts is a torch. And what this art historian has uncovered, this staggering realization, is that the torch was the symbol in the Benefits of Christ, this illegal Protestant manual that's circulating in Italy, for what faith and works their relationship actually should be. In the Benefits of Christ, it is impossible for a fire to be kindled and not give forth light. This is the faith without which it is impossible that any man can please God. <laughs> the virtues are not antagonistic against faith. Faith is the light, and then virtues and good works just naturally springs from light. You cannot separate light from fire. It's, they, they work together. And Michelangelo, when the... Catholic Church started cracking down and making the possession of the benefits of Christ something that would get you in a lot of trouble, Michelangelo had to go back and erase some of his Protestant ideas. He even had the statue turned around, and the reason that Michelangelo's Moses is turning away from the altar with the chains that St. Peter was bound with is because he's insisting upon this necessity of contacting God directly and not just through the mediator of a certain office. And when you go there, you can see that clearly. You can't see it clearly in this slide, unfortunately, but Moses is turning away from the altar. This is a shattering discovery in the last 10 years of Michelangelo's scholarship. And I point that out because instead of being Protestants who are getting excited about the virtue tradition, as important that, as that is, let's think back to the Catholics who were excited about grace. <laughs> and realized that they paid a pretty penny, and some of them paid with their lives for preaching this idea of grace can get you through and the virtues cannot do it. So I think we need to begin with grace, which is why I begin with testimonies from people. And these people, of course, are then going to be mercilessly persecuted. Vittoria Colonna dies under suspicious circumstances. And Gonzaga and Paul, they fall out of favor because they were pushing these ideas. So as we move ahead, let's remember that the true treasure of the church is the holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. That is the treasure that we need to continue to move forward with as we think about this virtue and vice tradition. But I also want to point out that sometimes when we look to the Protestant tradition, we think, well, you know, but we, we really, even so, we've emphasized grace, but we really haven't helped people develop these practices, have we? We don't have a tradition that focuses on how and to avoid envy. Well, I'm not sure that's true either. Because if you look at some of the art historical research that's gone on in regard to the history of visual culture as Protestants, look, you see the same tree in a Methodist manual from the 18th century that we saw in those fancy Middle Ages manuscripts. 
So yes, indeed, there is a rich and abundant virtue tradition, but it's interesting, isn't it, that it happens amongst the Methodists, that tradition that realized the need to emphasize working it all out. So I put that out there to remind us of the messiness of the paradox of what it means to pursue this, to not forget grace, but to also realize we've inherited these resources. That's just a general preface for us to begin with. We don't have time to go into Aristotle in great detail, but we'll just be really quick about it. In his Nicomachean Ethics, well, before I keep going there, any questions about that? I'm intended to just kind of smash everything together again in those statements. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. And so I was curious, like, why you chose to emphasize that? Because even, that is a great question. Even Aristotle had this problem. He says in the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics, you're going to want to just learn about these on your own, put them in your head and figure them out. But the point is not to learn about the virtues. The point is to become virtuous. And so the reason we mention that is because it is a classic trap to get lost in the, it's an incredibly rich tradition, to get lost in the pyrotechnics intellectually and to forget to apply. It is, I remember a colleague of mine, we were talking about this in our seminar, and she said what was amazing is as virtues were being rediscovered at the graduate school where I studied, nobody was virtuous. Some of the nastiest backbiting happened in the seminar rooms where we were discussing the fine details of Aristotle's theory of virtue. And this was a school that has really been a part of reviving this tradition. So that's why we mentioned going from knowledge to experience. And in Aristotle's line here, it's just, it really is wonderful. For someone who abstains from bodily pleasures enjoys the, if someone, oh, sorry for the typo, enjoys the abstinence itself, he is temperate. If he is grieved by it, he is intemperate, okay? If you enjoy abstaining from a given luxury, then you have mastered the virtue. If it is a struggle for you, you are not yet in that virtuous condition, okay? This is what Aristotle says. The joy of imbibing these virtues, think of the sermon illustration we heard. Father Andrew's been forecasting this in his sermons. Father Martin has several times of the woman who in the Olympics felt that her heart was prepared for that immediate reaction to turn around and help her colleague. Her heart had been prepared. And I bet you she enjoyed it in a way. That's how you know you're inhabiting the virtuous condition. So that is the training aspect that's going on, not apart from God on our own, but with him and by his grace. And maybe a quick way of illustrating this, I downloaded a fitness app realizing it's probably time for me to get going. And uh, this is a seven-minute workout, okay? And uh, and notice that it has a ranking for whether or not you are, uh, how your motivation for working out. And I thought, this is Aristotle in perfect summary, okay? The lowest ranking for why you are working out is I was told I need to make changes, (laughs) okay? That's number one, okay? It's time for you to start working out. You are not yet virtuous, right? Number two, I know I should focus on my health and I'd feel guilty if I didn't. Okay, so at least this one's internally motivated, okay? As you, as you become an Ironman, you move ahead. 
I want to, to take care of myself because I know it will benefit my quality of life. You're beginning to, it's like, I, I can't wait for the, for the workout. And then the highest level, I just, I just love it. <laughs> that's, that's what Aristotle's trying to say about virtue. When, as you walk down, and if you wanted to give money for, for Anne's loss, if you're like, oh, for goodness sakes, those people that stop you at the corner, right? They're everywhere. Right? And it's like, and, and, you know, and, and it's like, do you, uh, or is it like, hey, here you go. Virtuous giving is joyful and spontaneous. And it just, Aristotle's insight there, or the seven-minute workout insight, however you want to see it, is a deeply insightful illumination of the human condition. And that, we're, we're, we're on the end of this road of virtue is lots of joy. That comes from doing things rightly. Now, let's move to the virtue that we're going to start with. And we don't have time to give it what it really deserves, but we're, we're compressed to get it all in in our year. And here is how Giotto illustrates it. And it's one of my favorite. And I stood right in front of it this summer, and I'm like, oh, it's my life. What you have here is charity and invidia or envy. And it is a perfect encapsulation of, of this vice of envy because the snake goes out and bites the head of the person. And it's kind of abstract and surreal, but, but it beautifully encapsulates the risk and the danger of envy. And here are some more modern examples. This one is from the 16th century. And here's Paul Cadmus. I'll show him a couple of times. This gives you a sense of just how ugly envy is. Envy will ruin your day today if you choose to give in to it. Um, it. It could kill you. You don't have to have a medical degree to know that someone totally given to envy. There could be physiological manifestations of that. It is a horrific thing. And it, it, will, um, it will weigh you down. It is very ugly. So, to, and I just, it's interesting that the snakes show up in both of these modern or more modern manifestations as well, maybe perhaps um, in response to Giotto. Modern example, right? That's a parable of envy. It's a beautiful parable of envy. Woody has to deal with the fact that this is the new toy in town. And the subject of great literature. I'll give you a more uh, highbrow example. Um, okay. The practice of virtue, this is Thomas Keating, by means of contemplative prayer, the spirit heals the roots of self-centeredness and becomes the source of our conscious activity. The practice of virtue is the term for erasing the old programs and writing the new programs based on the values of the gospel. So this is sanctification. This is the progress of the Christian life. And Thomas Keating, this monk, gives a story. I mean, this congregation has, there, it could, we could avoid all the major obvious outward sins, but be totally infected with envy. And he gives an example of that. In his book, Invitation to Love, he talks about his struggle with envy in the monastery. He was seeing this brother who was allowed to sit. He got permission to sit during the services. And Keating is there kneeling every day faithfully, but this brother got permission to sit with this blissful look on his face as he was praying to God. And he just started to hate this guy. 
I began to recognize my thoughts were envious. Here I was in this holy place, in this holy position, trying to practice the holiest kind of prayer. And if I was envying someone else's spiritual attainment. Envy is ripe amongst Christians. And so it's a great place for us to begin. And Keating says that realization was the beginning of my serious spiritual progress. Realizing that even though I was a nice, holy, pious monk, I was afflicted with this cardinal sin. Although we often use envy and and jealousy synonymously, jealousy is the condition of loving something and possessing it and then feeling threatened because the loved thing or person might be taken away. I found this a fascinating insight. Rebecca DeYoung, again, wonderful person to go to. There's a lot of great YouTube videos that she's given either at Wheaton or or at Calvin or at other places if you want to learn more about these traditions without buying her book, but buy her book as well. She distinguishes between jealousy and envy following the great tradition. They're not the same. God is jealous, but he is not envious, right? The Lord your God is a jealous God. But envy is something different. And so we have to zero in on what this definition, what this strange vice looks like. Jealousy requires some sort of legitimate claim. A jealous person has a right to the thing in question or thinks that he or she has a right to the thing or question. But envy is differently. Now, it operates differently in the soul. And so as we push jealousy aside as a possibility, even for the holies being imaginable, even for God, he can have that. But envy is impossible for God. Because envy rests, according to the tradition, on interpersonal comparison. That is the soil in which envy grows. We are comparison machines as Some scholars put it in describing what this is like. And and envy, when you're looking at another person and saying, do I measure up with that person or not? That is the soil from which the tree of envy springs. And Aquinas' great definition, premised upon this understanding, it is sorrow for another's good, when another's good may be reckoned as being one's own evil. Sorrow for another's good. Now, as Aquinas is wont to do, he's like, all right, I just gave you a definition and you're going to come up with some exceptions. I'm there first. Well, if a warrior is about to take out Wheaton, right, with an army and he's really skilled, well, we could be sorrowful for his skill and that would not be envious. That's just legitimate fear. So he's like, all right, fair enough. Um, zeal, you can have, I can say, wow, you know, that person is so intelligent and I am going to study harder because of the way that they have shown me their intellect. That is not envious. That is, you're sorrowful because you're not smarter. It can be done. Comparison need not completely be eliminated. So that's very interesting. And finally, indignation. Someone got an A in, on the archaeology exam, but we found out they were cheating. Well, now we're sorrowful that they're good, but it's based upon a legitimate uh, protestation. So he gives you all these qualifiers, but then he says, no, no, no. Um, if When those are understood, he's like, all right, I'm going to have to bring my definition with a little bit more clarity now. And so he says that the parents of envy and all these vices have parents and children. Okay? 
One of the parents of envy in one of Aquinas' definition is vainglory. And that is the immodest desire to have other people speak well of you. The immodest desire for, it's okay for you to want people to speak well of you. But when that overtakes in an unhealthy way, that's called vainglory. And so based upon that parent, Aquinas gives the definition, envy It is about another's good name insofar as it diminishes the good name someone desires to have. And so the zero-sum game. You're getting accolades, and that means that I am not. So under the category of vainglory, this is Aquinas' definition. And then also, if you look to the parent of pride, and vainglory is in regard to other people, but pride is the inordinate, inordinate desire for your own excellence. This is more internally motivated. We grieve over a man's good insofar as his good surpasses ours. This is envy properly speaking, and it is always sinful. And so when you see the roots, this is the root of the tree is pride and vainglory, and that leads to the horrific leaves of envy. And so in this case, the desire to be thought of well is the root, and in that case, your own excellence. So he starts to parse this out and says, all right, now we're, we're zeroing in on a clearer definition of what envy is. And then he says, well, we, if we've identified some of the parents, and some people are dissatisfied with these definitions, but they'll work for me. They've already cut to the core of who I am. And then he says, let's talk about the children. Detraction and slander or gossip. Anyone who spends that much time at the office could accomplish that, but I prefer not to neglect my family. <laughs> sure, if headquarters gave me those many resources, I could have easily secured that contract as well. If I had that course reduction, I could accomplish that much research also. <laughs> Natural things that we could find ourselves saying. But... Now you can understand where they spring from. These are the daughters of envy. And it can get really nasty. You could spread false stories about someone in order to prop up yourself based in that comparison. What is the goal? To lessen the good name of another so that your own good name is increased. Another scholar says, at a deeper level within, envy is a form of dissatisfaction with oneself. You're dissatisfied with your own situation and you want to be in his. And one thing we've got to point out is that envy can be based upon a genuine loss. I was thinking about Anne. She's lost an infant. And imagine seeing a happy mother and baby. And how quickly it would be easy for her heart to yield to envy in that case. So I think we can be compassionate and sometimes when someone is prone to envy, it's because, you know what, it was a zero-sum game. There was one fellowship. He got it. I didn't get it. But it puts us on our knees in that regard. Sometimes the envy arises from our woundedness, from our brokenness. And that is what leads us to a deeper life of prayer. What is the solution to envy? To love is to seek another's good and rejoice when they have it. To envy is to seek to destroy another's good and sorrow over their having it. 
Very simply, <laughs> love does not envy. And so charity is the restorative virtue that moves in. And we're, we're out of time, so um, I just want to end with a few quotes in this regard. The development of charity naturally drives out envy. You can't rejoice and sorrow over another's good. Replacing comparison with admiration both diminishes envy and increases happiness. The solution to this, ver to this vice is admiring one another. It's so simple, right? Love more, as some of us just heard in the sermon and as some of you will hear. But at the same time, I think this virtue tradition enables you to get out the scalpel and find out exactly what's going wrong and how admiration can overcome that vice. And humility as well, and understanding one's own value and worth. We're going so fast. But there was so much prefatory material to cover. I want to also point out on your handout that from Jay Wood, I stole his initial sheet on the other side that gives you the scriptural warrant for pursuing these virtues and also is another reminder alongside Contarini and Michelangelo to avoid the risk of this turning into a self-improvement project. Envy is so close to who we are that the only solution is to, as Taylor advises us, to constantly be praying for its removal and its replacement with admiration and love. Thank you, everybody. We'll have more next week.